0: Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas... We follow him from Burma, to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm in 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season
1: 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcast.
0: Hello and welcome to Romaniacs. I'm Dorian Linsky and I'll be discussing the joy of six with the fantastic three. Naomi Smith is CEO of Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi.
2: Hi, Dorian.
0: So the rule of six on social gatherings is now in effect. The crime minister, Kit Malthouse, says people should report their neighbours if they're breaking the new rule. Is encouraging members of the public to report on each other. Good for national cohesion.
2: (laughs) I mean, obviously, it's not ideal. um, But for me, I think it just has to come down to proportionality, right? And obviously, if a neighbour is a repeat offender and constantly having massive gatherings and not observing the rules, then it is probably our duty to report that uh, because of the harm principle. Um, So I don't think that the, you know, the dob on your neighbours thing is necessarily that sinister in the the context and the proportionality of a national emergency but I do find it completely galling that the government are placing responsibilities on individuals when they've upheld their own responsibilities to maintain public health so terribly you know locking down late all of that we know we've been over that a million times so yeah the bigger issue is just that the government doesn't have any legitimacy on compliance after Dominic Cummings's Barnard Castle eye test and 400 mile round trip and because it's a government that admits it, it it likes to break laws, right? You know, even if it's limited and specific. So on what leg do they have to stand to get us to, to comply?
0: And if you overhear what sounds like a party, um, should the quality of the music being played?
2: <laughs> Ask the music journalist. Like if, it's, if, it's the, if
0: it's the Red Hot Chili Peppers, it's just like I'm I'm on the phone right away. Fresh from the bunker, like the podcast equivalent of an Ironman triathlete, it's Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. <laughs> Hello. Uh, the Rule of Six has an exemption, which is perfect for the new red wall seats the Tories have just won. Good news, grouse shooting is still allowed because it's classed <laughs> as a licensed outdoor sport. So can we have a party as long as all the guests bring guns?
3: <laughs> um Uh, only if it's shooting season and only if your guests are actual grouse would be my legal advice on this. (laughs) Our guest this week is an eager young gun hoping
0: to break into the crazy world of podcasting. (laughs) He's he's a bit nervous, as you can tell from his nervous laugh, so I hope you'll give him a chance. Here to talk about his new book, How to Be a Liberal, is Ian Dunt. Hello, Ian. Hey, this is weird. (laughs) (laughs) Ian, your last book in 2016 uh looked very closely at the future of brexit um this one runs from descartes in the 1600s right up to the present day uh what compelled you to (laughs) tell such an, an immense story
1: i mean i guess it was the sense that we were that we didn't really know our values like if you speak to sort of like someone that calls himself a socialist or something, you, I mean, even you know when they're not that well read, they'll probably be able to do sort of Marx and Engels. Most liberals I, I really haven't gone back to those texts very often, and I think we have this sort of instinct, a lot of us, of like you know, well, I welcome immigration and I want people to be as free as possible, and I value reason over sort of emotion and superstition in, in political debate. But it hasn't kind of you don't have a cohesive sense of like. W- where that came from, why it is that we feel that way, and like I don't really like I, I don't really have very many things that I'm particularly good at. The, the only thing that I'm sort of all right at is sort of trying to make things simple and like complex technical things simple and comprehensible. And so for that, I just thought like, well, what what if we just what if we could just tell that story of the values, but do it like kind of almost like a novel, you know? Like try to like try to harness all of the stuff to make it as entertaining as possible. And as easy to consume as possible, like almost like like an airport thriller or something, and like try to write it like that way, just to make it, just to make it, just to put some sugar in the medicine, basically. So yeah, it was that basically. It came from that, and then of course that ended up with me fucking sat there, you know, at two o'clock in the morning, trying to read four hundred year old text, thinking, why (laughs) the fuck have I done? You
0: should you should check out Wikipedia, man. It's
3: great. Hey, listen, Ian, reading it was no picnic either. <laughs> um,
0: one, of the, uh, one of the things that comes out of your very readable book is that liberalism has evolved out of a series of, um, uh, not, not exclusively, but largely a series of upheavals, was the French and American revolutions, the two world wars. Mm. Um, does this current phase of kind of overlapping crises demand yet another iteration? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. And and every time what happens, this is the thing about it that works um, as opposed to sort of things like Marxism, which is that it's really not chiseled into concrete. It's not handed down in stone tablets. It's this kind of very, very vibrant, kicking, scrapping, rebellious questioning creed, because it doesn't tell you what to think. What it does, it, it does indicate to you how to think. And it really comes down, I mean, it just gives you this unit of analysis, which is the the freedom of the individual. And from that, you can come to like very, very diverse conclusions. Some of them can be really quite right wing. Some of them are very, very left wing and lots and millions of sort of, you know, variations within that. So each time that you get these impacts on it, as you did, you know, in the book probably covers about three different periods where liberalism is just getting like properly fucking twatted out there. And at the end of it, you get these guys that come and they just sort of go, well, hang on you know, what isn't working here? Like what have, where have we gone wrong? And what is it that we need to adapt to? And so I, you know, it could well be that this period is the death of liberalism. That's it. But I don't fucking believe that shit. What I think is that we're seeing another one of those periods where liberalism gets twatted and it sits down and it goes, wait, what is going wrong? And how do we fix it? And and I think Mm. ultimately you can already see that process happening around us now.
0: Well, uh, regular listeners should know that the phrase "fucking twatted" does not appear in the book, nor, <laughs> nor, as far as I can tell, does does the word "fuck" in any uh, version. Which is uh, it? It takes some getting used to. He's saving it for the audiobook. <laughs> it's like it's like serious Ian. It's like he's come back into the room with like glasses and a tweed jacket, on. <laughs> and he's like, "No, I don't swear. I am serious, Ian." <laughs> Uh, we'll be grilling seriously Ian, on liberalism's past, present and future later in the show. But before that, we'll discuss the Internal Market Bill. On Monday night, the Commons signed off on its promise to break international law by changing the withdrawal agreement. What does it mean for Brexit and will the Lords come to the rescue? First up this week, the government's Internal Markets Bill cleared the first fence in the Commons, but appears set for a difficult passage through Parliament. It drew condemnation from rebel Tory MPs. All five former Prime Ministers collect the set. Two-thirds of the public, according to opinion polls, and comeback king Ed Miliband, who stuck it to Boris Johnson like the wimp-turned-hero of the beach in the old Charles (laughs) (laughs) Allison. Oh, Ed, that bully won't shove him around again. Um, Ian, last week we were told that these amendments allowed MPs to break the law in very specific and limited ways. Uh, How specific and limited are the powers the government has just tried to give itself?
1: No, no, they're neither. They're they're neither of those two things. They're general powers. These are general powers. So, I mean, insofar as there's limitation, it's, you know, it concerns the area of the Irish Protocol within the um, withdrawal agreement with the EU. But within that, do whatever the fuck they like. Like, what they've essentially given them is that there's a couple, you know, statutory instruments. So, statutory instruments are secondary legislation. It basically means you don't need to go through like an actual sort of an act of parliament or any of that kind of stuff. You give ministers powers to act as kind of like little mini parliaments. They can just put down regulations. But within, and so statutory instruments in and of themselves, look, they're necessary. For some things, right, like if you need to change the type of video camera, CCTV camera that you're using for, you know, for, for speeding on the roads, you, that's a good case, right? You would use your statutory instrument. You don't need to have a big debate about that. But of course, governments tend to misuse these things. They tend to expand them into areas where they really shouldn't be using them. Now, there's lots of different kinds of statutory instrument, negative, affirmative. This one is made affirmative for the first six months of operation of the bill, which means you don't even need the Commons and the Lords to even say it's all right before you put it down. You can just put down the regulation. You can just do whatever you like. Um, And there's then a period of 40 days where they can try to annul it. But even if they annul it, you can just put it down again. So essentially what the bill says is, in this area of Northern Ireland Protocol, which is a pretty a pretty big area, right? It's the, basically the entirety of our future sort of trading arrangements and in the integrity of of the UK. Ministers can do whatever the fuck they like without checking with MPs, without checking with Lords, and without having to abide by domestic or international law. This is the other thing we're not talking about. It's not even just international; law. It's, an, it's any domestic law or international law. So there, it is not specific. It is not limited. It is, by distance, the most the most aggressive expansion of the power of the executive that i've ever seen in a piece of british legislation
0: um in your book it, it appears to me the layman uh, that breaking the law uh, for political gain and expanding executive power <laughs> does not always end well um,
1: <laughs> did you get do- that subtle message i thought you know <laughs> i tried to show not tell on that but yeah
0: uh, do you think that this is uh this is a one-off because it's obviously very specific to, you know, the Brexit process, which will not be with us forever, much so it feels like it will. Um, or is it a dangerous precedent that will,
1: that may well be repeated in uh, non-Brexit related areas of life? Um, no, I mean, look, I think with all of this stuff, once you break it, you've set a precedent. Like, why would you not every time that something is inconvenient to you, why would you not do it again? And they're clearly unable to to look at the deals that they themselves have signed and then promote. So every time they come across something shocking like, oh, look, we've just severed our territorial integrity in terms of trade, why would they not do it again? And and even if they don't, why would anyone trust them to stick to their word, even in the cases, slim as they may be, where they actually intend to?
0: Naomi, coming back to domestic politics, the Bill's second reading passed on the majority of 77. It's a far cry from Tories' amazing knife-edge votes, but 30 Tories did abstain, including Sajid Javid and Geoffrey Cox. The government insists it won't make any concessions to restive Tory MPs, um, but I mean, is, is it too early to uh, is it too early to say that?
2: Well, there, uh, there were lots of abstentions and not many active rebellions at the second reading earlier this week, which is what we expected. We, we sort of expected there to be more hijinks next week. Um, at, for instance, people like. Tom Tugendhart didn't abstain because um, he's hopeful for a government back down of sorts uh, between now and next Tuesday when it comes back to them. And so I doubt we're going to see rebellions going up. And I'll come back to that in a second. But that said, we may yet see some more big resignations. Uh, Just before we uh, recorded the show, the government's law officer for Scotland, Lord Keane, offered his resignation to the Prime Minister, uh, the Advocate General saying um, he has found it increasingly difficult to reconcile government plans to change the EU exit deal with the law. So this, this is something that's continuing to hurt the government. All the signs today are pointing to Johnson and Bob Neal reaching some kind of an agreement over the Bob Neal amendment. Um, whether that's going to be enough to keep rebel numbers low remains to be seen, but I think the fun stuff will actually happen in the House of Lords when it goes to them. Now, if the bill goes to the Lords unamended, I should think they are definitely going to kill it in the committee stages. If the bill comes to them amended with a version of Bob Neal's amendment, it may have a slightly easier ride but either way I think we should expect there uh, to be a long committee stage in the House of Lords um, with lots of amendments going through before it goes back to the Commons and I very much doubt that the Lords have got a huge appetite for a big ping pong backwards and forwards but you know who knows we, we may see.
0: Alex uh, for those of, us, uh, those of us who think that the Bob Neill amendment is a prog rock group um, what <laughs> exactly is it intended to do?
3: So it gives, basically, Parliament the final say over whether these powers can be used to override the international treaty. It makes the bill more palatable politically for a domestic audience, but from all the expert analysis I've read, it does nothing for the bill legally. So the the treaty we signed with the EU eight months ago provides for an arbitration mechanism in case of disagreement or lack of clarity, and it's not the House of Commons any more than it is the Secretary of State. So giving powers to some other body, effectively to deviate from what was agreed, can certainly lead to breach of international law. And there's a respectable school of thought that uh, it is a de facto breach, even if never used. Well, yeah, because
0: Johnson says he won't use any of the powers he's just been granted if a deal is reached with the EU, even as he acts like he doesn't really want one. How's the EU reading this? As, as, as further brinksmanship or just a bomb to blow up the talks?
3: Mm, uh, well, the first thing to say is that that's a bullshit argument. The, the whole point of the protocol was that it was in place in case a deal could not be found. That's why it was called a backstop. It's a bit Um, like saying, I won't punch you if you give me the money. It's like, that's not great. It it was explicitly put in place in case they couldn't find a deal. Because basically, right at the start of the negotiations, the EU said, we're not going to negotiate before these three issues are settled. Because we don't think it's fair to the Northern Ireland peace process, rights of... uh, EU Citizens and the Divorce Bill, for that to be held over our head as a negotiating tool. Now, having negotiated all that and signed it, the UK has realized that it has basically no other cards to play with, and it's trying to go back so that it has some kind of negotiating leverage. From my contacts in Brussels, this is seen as a move to basically as a preamble to blaming the EU for no deal. Basically, the UK, they think, is trying to make the EU walk away by behaving outrageously. On the other hand, Frost went to Brussels today earlier than expected with a reported concession on fishing. So maybe the UK team know they have to fold on all these issues and are trying to style it out by talking very loudly. Because the issue of where the the customs border falls, because it has to fall somewhere, has been the sort of
0: pin the tail on the donkey of the Brexit process. Where is it going to end up?
3: (laughs) Funny you should ask that. Um, So this morning I watched the Parliamentary Committee in Northern Ireland quiz Brendan Lewis, the relevant Secretary of State, and the killer question came from its chair, who's a conservative, uh, Simon Hall. And he asked, if a business calls you up today and says, For what am I now preparing? East-West? North-South? Bit of both? The protocol? (laughs) The bill? What advice would you give them? And all Lewis could offer was that we're trying to sort it out as soon as possible. It's just over 100 days to the end of the transition now, and we're still in a holding pattern. What a fucking shambles.
0: So Naomi, just to go back to the, to the rebels here, Besser Britain's been encouraging constituents to write to their MPs, uh, speak out to help out. I mean, how is that going? Do you think there's, there's, much, there's much room there for people to find a spine?
2: It, it, it's been quite interesting. So, we obviously do write to MP campaigns when there's a big moment, a big vote happening uh, that we want to steer the outcome on. And um, so, we have a bit of a benchmark for how these things go. And this one's been going incredibly well. We, we've probably sent 40,000 messages uh, mostly to Conservative MPs in the last week. Um, so, that is really quite phenomenal. And what I've been encouraged by is that the responses that some MPs and you know even junior ministers are are going back to their constituents with are nowhere near as bullish as they usually would be which you know they'd often be like thanks for your concerns but we've got this all in hand government knows what it's doing leave us alone and actually the tone of the responses this week has been much more well you know I voted for this because I wanted to see it go through the committee stages where it has to have proper scrutiny and that's why I backed it you know this is so important that we get this right and I really do thank you for getting in touch with me so that tone Tonal shift, I think, gives us an indication that they are genuinely worried uh, that this was going to come back and bite them on the arse and that the rebellions could have gone the other way. And I think, um, you know, I would encourage all listeners to to write to their MP, also to write to their local paper. We know that Tory MPs in particular take a lot of notice of that. And to your local Conservative Association, you know, Google them, find their, their email address and drop them a note. Because... Often it's the case that the MP might be on board, but they're so terrified of being deselected by their local association that they, they, you know, they they don't always do the brave thing. So if if we know that the association is getting the pressure as well, that might help. The
0: removal of the whip has been threatened, which is obviously less sort of dangerous to the government if you've got a majority of 80. Mm. Um, But perhaps it's not the, uh, the you don't want to wheel out the nuclear option every time. Do you think Johnson will do it again?
2: I, I agree with you on that. I mean, I'd put nothing past him doing it on future things, but I just don't think it's looking like it's going to be needed this time. The government are worried enough to be wanting to make some of these concessions and, you know, working with objectors like Bob Neal. So I uh, expect they're dousing the flames with water to avoid needing to, to threaten whip removal this time. But I wouldn't put it past him in the future on other things.
0: Our guest this week is beloved Romaniacs regular Ian Dunt, who's magnum, magnum opus, how to be a liberal, is out right now. Magnum opus being Latin for big book. Um, <laughs> Ian, um, sort of the personal question, when did you actually first start thinking of yourself uh, as a liberal? Was that kind of how you, you sort of grew up, or was there a bit of a, a, a journey to get there?
1: A journey, my journey. Um, my yeah. journey. My <laughs> journey.
3: My journey by Ian Dunn. (laughs) (laughs) He'll be ready by next year. (laughs) Wasn't that Tony Um, Blair?
1: So, I mean, I can't, I I don't know when I first started using that, that word. I, I, my, my sort of political journey kind of went from uh, evangelical Christianity to Orthodox Marxism to Trotskyism to sort of anarcho-syndicalism to the, Kind of weirder, more moderate, wacky edges of anarchism, and then into liberalism, um, which isn't like as weirder Because there's quite a little swinging bit there between anarchism and and liberalism that mm. kind of works actually, and it it can be quite a good exit strategy from losing your mind with Marxism <laughs> to get into a bit of anarchism. Um, Uh, So yeah, it went that way. What I found was, and and for a long time, I would basically, I would say things like I'm a sort of left libertarian. That was basically the sort of thing I would say, because if you say anarchist, then, you know, on Sky News, it it looked a bit weird. Um, (laughs) But what I kept on finding was that when I was having like a, like a debate or something on something like um, drug legalization, it was, I kept on finding myself saying things like, look, this is just classic enlightenment theory, right? This is just the enlightenment that we're saying right now, when I'm talking about these kinds of values, these kinds of, these kind of ideas. And I do remember there was a point where I, uh, I sort of thought, cause it would make it sound more respectable, you know, when you're, when you're talking about something really quite radical, like legalizing drugs. Um, and then I suddenly thought, well, actually, if that's the case, then what actually really like, what actually, what is it that I have a problem with in enlightenment thought and, the truth is, when you look at it, you start thinking, I basically have a problem with fuck all that's in here. Like this stuff makes t- total sense. And most importantly, is far, far more radical than we think. And that is actually kind of like weirdly a theme in the book. You constantly have people that when you come up with this value, when you say that what matters to us is the freedom of the individual in each and every time period from sort of the 1600s to the 1800s to now you quickly find yourself logically approaching very, very radical points of view that you just weren't accepting. And over and over again, liberals do it. They, they promote that value. And then someone goes, well, in that case, you must be pro this. And they're like, oh, fuck me. I didn't think I was. And they sort of step back from the brink. But ultimately, the truth is, it's a profoundly radical set of ideas. And the fact that it's old doesn't make it any less radical. And that was what, part of what just acclimatized myself to it. Just eventually, I started using the word.
0: Because, I mean, I suppose now it reads to a lot of people as this sort of rather dull, complacent middle ground. But many of the sort of turning points in the history and in your book uh, happen very quickly, very chaotically, sometimes bloodily. Um, So did you want to sort of just really emphasise that kind of that messy sort of experimental aspect to it?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, sometimes it feels it's like when that guy from the Sex Pistols did the butter commercial. That's how, like, the way that people talk about liberalism now makes me feel because you just think <laughs> it, 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 this, this projection of it as sort of like, you know, very genteel and, and, and sort of almost conservative with a small c is just so deeply fucking wrong. Like, in, in each stage of that, there were people that were giving up their lives. I mean, the, the early stages of liberalism are people in jail cells being starved by their guards, smuggling out, Illegal pieces of writing that were published on outlawed presses and spread through the streets of London. I mean, that, for instance, is where the concept of human rights comes from in the English Civil War. That's where it comes from. And later on, even when they're sort of a bit wealthier, people like Constant, people like John Stuart Mill, they're these profoundly sort of isolated, kind of misfit figures. These guys just don't quite fit in. There's something usually quite fundamentally broken about them. And they feel very sort of oppressed by society and by this demanding sense of conformity. So even you look at like all of those guys really. In fact, I'd say probably the only happy person in that whole book is Isaiah Berlin in sort of the post-war period. There's a there's a period there's a point where someone asks him a question in an interview and goes, "Oh, you know, would you? How would you feel about living forever?" And he's like, "Oh, of course you'd be like, well, why ever not?" And he's probably the only person in that book that would answer that question that way. Most of them were really quite bitterly unhappy and and pressed down upon, and they created something that was for people who would think for themselves, who wouldn't fit in anywhere else, who who demanded the freedom to properly be themselves. So it has that in it, and it still has it in it now. Every time that liberalism gets into trouble is when it becomes complacent. And that's what happens in the lead up, I think, to the First World War. It's what happened to us, you know, it's sort of in the you know, you could call it like the neoliberal period or the laissez-faire period, so from the late 70s to the noughties. When it becomes complacent, it goes wrong because it loses touch with the fundamental radicalism that it has inside of itself.
0: And I'm contractually obliged to ask you briefly about uh, George Orwell. Because,
1: <laughs> no, uh, that actually makes me quite nervous. Yeah, who does obviously. appear in it?
0: Because um, in certain lines, you quite, he sounds rather like John Stuart Mill, and John Stuart Mill sounds rather like him. You know, there's, there's, there's these overlapping mm-hmm. uh, points do you think Orwell was fundamentally a liberal, you know, really sort of like a 19th century liberal who, who, who only thought he was a socialist?
1: My take on him is that there are, there's two people there. Um, and there's sort of, there's, there's Eric Blair, you know, who's, who's a socialist. And then there's George Orwell, the writer, who's a liberal. And he says, a, a couple of places, he says, you know, because as a writer, you are a liberal. It's sort of as if it's this sort of professional duty Is it because as a writer, you're concerned with the individual? And and so there's this weird sort of, it's almost like you can see him almost looking down on himself at certain key moments. But even apart from that, there can be such a thing as liberal socialism. It can't be liberal Marxism. That's different because once you're dealing with Marx, you you have forgotten the individual. And and Marx, even though he has his better moments, there's a section on Marx there looking at things, and he does have his better moments. And he deals with the the lack of freedoms of the individual in the workplace in a way that liberals until that point simply hadn't grappled with, even though that takes up the vast majority of lots of people's lives. But his category isn't the individual. His category is ultimately the class. And once your category is no longer the individual, suddenly you can do really quite terrible things to people in order for the greater good, in order for, for to maintain this, this separate human grouping that you've got. But with socialism, there is a chance to have a liberal socialism. And I think probably he was, he, there's certain key moments where you can see him grasping for that. But to me, the most interesting and most sort of nutritious stuff he has to offer is on liberal theory. It's not really on the economics, which I mostly just ignored and thought looked a bit rubbish.
2: Ian you've kind of touched on this saying that you know you you can sort of have a a, a liberal socialism but I'm Kind of interested in capitalism because you know we're, it, it it's it's a lot of what we talk about at the moment and we've we've got groups like extinction rebellion uh you know that that're bringing some sort of kind of like fresh ideas into uh, that whole narrative so i'm I'm kind of interested in knowing whether you think we can have liberal democracy without capitalism.
1: I think that's very difficult so to, to, so this goes back to that split, that fundamental economic split of, and, and this goes all the way through the liberal story, and it's right—it's right there in John Locke. It's there, by the way, in Adam Smith, in a way that people don't talk enough about these kind of core roots of where the economics of liberalism would then all the different sort of sort of uh, uh, branches would then spring, um, and it's really about you know, do you get to keep all your stuff? Is that what individual freedom is, or? I'm really simplifying here. Or do you you know, have to give up some of your stuff? And does the state have to get involved in order to ensure there's a greater spread of individual freedom for more people? And weirdly, that process starts to be articulated by John Stuart Mill, which you wouldn't expect because, I mean, he his dad used to be mates with David Ricardo. I mean, this guy mm. was just fucking seeped in Adam Smith's sort of classical economics. But he has this moment where he says, "It's it, to me, it's like the most, I think it's one of the most important phrases in all political philosophy, where he says, the question of the state versus the market does not admit of a universal solution. So in other words, you've got laissez-faire guys over here saying the market is always right. The state is always a threat. You've got communists over here saying the market is always a threat. The state is always right. The state will organize our material life. Mill's position is to me, the classical radical liberal position, the egalitarian liberal position, which is to say, that is some fucking infantile bullshit if I've ever seen it in my life. And in fact, we work on a case-by-case basis to work out what is it the market does right and what is it that the state does right and that the market isn't capable of doing. Where is it that you have market failure, for instance, where monopolies develop on you know, certain utilities? You could take like electricity. For him, it was stuff like canals. Where is it that we need, for instance, to create autonomous free individuals? We surely need free schooling. Where is it that we need with welfare in order to provide that? What is it that we need to regulate in industry to make sure that capitalism works for the greater freedom of people rather than actually just its own profit motives? So all of that is within liberalism, but at no point does it ever fully, I'm unaware of any sort of liberal philosopher who fully gives up on the market because ultimately most of them accept that the state does stuff right, but also the market does do stuff right, right? Like Nobody wants the state to run the gourmet burger kitchen. Right. You know, or to make T-shirts, because ultimately you think, well, actually, when it comes to restaurants, it's a good system to have, you know, the, the better food it does, more people go there. It gets more money. It can have more outlets. It can provide more. Whereas under communism, you get the question of, well, who the fuck gets to have the nice food rather than the shit food? And the answer to that question is always the people closest to the bureaucratic class, the people who fit whatever designated group has held an approval at that time. So I don't, none of it, that was a long answer, but ultimately very little of it ever gives up on capitalism, but a huge element of liberalism doesn't give up on socialism either and thinks there are large parts of our economy, Mill said, without limit, like there is no limit to the parts of the economy, which would be run on the basis of need rather than on the basis of profit. So it's basically about burgers. LAUGHTER <laughs>
2: Got it. Got it. I, I have never been to a gourmet burger kitchen. <laughs> um, <laughs> them,
1: they do have vegan ones there, and they're not bad. Actually, they're not bad.
2: Okay, maybe I'll maybe I'll give it a go. Um, obviously, it wouldn't be you and I on a podcast if we didn't try and you know squeeze Brexit into this somehow. Um, in your book, Ben, you, you talk about the fact that Benjamin Constant argued that the will of the people doesn't really exist. But of course, that was a huge part of the Leave narrative. You know, the uh, tr- you know mantra of it that that everyone always remembers. Uh, you know, it's the will of the people. We've got to deliver on that. Um, how do liberals convince people that we gain consensus through acknowledging the individual rather than this sort of mythical idea of the people?
1: See, I just find I honestly find in conversation that is so. So easy, and people instinctively are drawn towards it because you're talking to someone and you're saying, you know, you, your own sense of value of yourself. You know, none of us want to think of ourselves as part of this homogenous mass. All of us value our own individuality. All of us do. So, the moment that someone tries to wallpaper over you, um, I, I, I feel like once people can articulate, once they hear those arguments, they are immediately receptive to it. That phrase, by the way, will of the people, it was starting to fucking spook me out how often it came up, like it comes up, it's right there in the English Civil War. It's, it's exactly the mechanism that is in the English Civil War to take this startlingly radical political movement and convert it into Cromwell's tyranny. It's right there. And I mean, the exact phrase, the exact phrase is being used. In the French Revolution, which again takes this, I mean, the most radical moment in human, you could basically split human history from before and after the rights of man and the French Revolution and converts it into Robespierre's um, executive control Mm -hmm. and the terror. Um, And it's right there in Stalin's Russia. It's right there in um, the famine in the Ukraine that he imposes there and in the gulag. I mean, this is a category that they use. Enemies of the people is a category when they put people into the gulag meat grinder. Wife of enemy of the people is another category they use when they put them into the meat grinder. It's right there in Nazi Germany. This phrase throughout the story keeps on coming up. And every time it comes up, it is to challenge liberalism. And every time it comes up, it results in hugely increased executive power, like, oh, I don't know, you know, the kind of thing like the state putting itself above the law and allowing itself to do whatever it wants while saying, this is the will of the people. The exact phrase then that Boris Johnson was using, not in this PMQs, but the PMQs before that relationship is an extraordinarily intimate one. It comes up again and again. We're seeing it now and you see it
3: all the way throughout that 400 year story. Ian, you write that the current rise of populism stems in part from a fixation with simple solutions because once someone accepts that the solutions are simple, then any complication must necessarily be some kind of plot to mm. stop the simple solution. I agree with that on the whole, but is that always the case? I'm, I'm thinking as a you know, former person working in the law on taxation for instance there is a respectable school of thought that says you know having labyrinthine rules supports an entire industry of accountants, lawyers, and fund managers, powerful people who actively resist simplifying um taxation um, it, it, you know there's a, there's a school of thought in philosophy as well that that says that often we miss the simple solutions because we are convinced that complicated problems can't be. Solved simply.
1: I'm more sympathetic towards the first example than the second. So there's definitely areas, especially in policy making, when you should be trying to make things as simple and comprehensible as possible. Another example, for instance, would be like the, the phrases and conventions that we have around parliamentary processes, right? Where we, I shouldn't yeah. be in it. You know, we, we shouldn't have this thing where we have to explain what a nulling and a, statu- an, a, yeah, a an yeah. affirmative statutory instrument. People should be able, it should be simple enough that you don't have to be a complete nerd to understand how your democracy works. So certainly when you face the public, there is something to be valued in simplicity. And in some intellectual arguments, simplicity is an advantage. However, the world is not simple. And I mean, I can almost, you know, so for the book, right, every chapter, I had to start again, knowing nothing, right? You know, it suddenly become like, you know, quite knowledgeable about the English Civil War. And then suddenly you have to start again with the American sort of revolution and you know nothing, you start again. And I can almost trace how how ready I was to start writing about it by the, the extent to which I recognized how complicated it was, right? Like mm-hmm. at the beginning, your first few moments of coming across something, you're like, oh, this is quite simple. It's just this and that. And then a couple more books later, you're like, oh, fucking hell, man. This is fucking complicated as fuck. And then, you know, you close a couple of experts and you read another book. And the exact moment that I think you're ready to do it is when you can start to describe the, the complexity of a thing in about four or five sentences. So it's it ultimately, to even understand the world is to recognize the complexity. So I think policymaking and an assessment of the world are two quite distinct things in that area. And in policy making, absolutely, you should often strive for simplicity, especially when sort of your average punter, member of the public, someone with a busy life is expected to abide by it. When it comes to acknowledging how the world fully operates, whether it's in science or economics or, you know, constitutional um, matters, the truth is the world is complicated. And anytime someone comes along and tells you something's actually simple, they are wrong.
3: How does liberalism intersect? with issues like what we're living through at the moment, a a public health emergency, or more broadly, let's say, environmental protection, where it seems to me a certain level of state muscularity and coordination is required and personal liberties must, by definition, be curtailed.
1: Well, you see, the state muscularity is required, but I don't believe that these situations involve a curtailment of individual liberties loads of liberalism, especially sort of egalitarian liberalism, especially left-wing liberalism, accepts the role of the state and would have the state be very, very involved. I mean, there's parts of the multicultural debate, you know, when you get sort of feminist liberalism that would just say, you know, basically we shouldn't even be allowing, the state shouldn't be allowing the Catholic church to operate unless you have sort of, you're ordaining female priests and then things like that. However, when we come to individual liberty, individual liberty is not an absolute you know, that is, this, that is a sort of an infantile version of it that you see from sort of right, some right-wing libertarians. Mm. It is about assessing the balance of rights that people have. So when it comes to the environment, when it comes to COVID, allowing these things to run rampant hurts individual liberty, right? Like a, a, someone who is vulnerable, who gets sick from COVID, because no action was taken to protect them when we knew we didn't have the capacity. That person has lost individual liberty. They've lost the liberty to do anything because, you know, they will die or they will suffer. The same with environmental issues that you lose the ability, you know, even to appreciate nature or much more importantly, when you get certain parts of the world where we will get migration flows, people literally not being able to live them, live in them because of the environmental impact. The, what liberalism asks you to do. Is to compare the quality and quantity of freedoms that are under discussion, and to make judgments. So, in the case of COVID, you're like, yeah, you're going to lose a liberty. We're going to have a lockdown, right? You're not going to be able to go out. You know, eight eight of us are not going to be able to meet up at the same time. The liberties that are gained by doing that are that the vulnerable are able to survive and to to see the full extent of their self creation and all the activities they want to do. So, I mean, liberalism—it's not so much how does it intersect. It's more like liberalism provides the answer for how you do these things with a proper moral light of what is at risk, what you were trying to preserve, the sacrifices and the hopes that you're engaging in it with. I don't think that any of this stuff can be done without liberalism.
0: Ian, Ian closing the book, you note that liberals need both the confidence to stand up for their beliefs, but also the humility to understand where they've gone wrong. Hmm. And it often seems like they can manage one or the other, uh, <laughs> but, not, but not both how are the opponents of populism uh particularly i think since 2016 faring on that front
1: are they are they erring in in one direction or the other yeah, i'm i'm sort of i'm thinking it through because you you do feel that there's rather too much and rather too little of both so look i I've, feel a tremendous amount of, of hope when I look around the world. Like I feel it in, when I look at like the Black Lives Matters protests, when I look at the protests that rose up against Trump's immigration reforms, when he was basically trying to deport 800,000 people at once, when he was separating children from their families, when I see the liberal institutions working according to basic liberal principles of separation of power, like the courts, parliaments, the congress, stand up against executive power. When I look at like the Remain movement here, where we may not have won, but you saw, for the first time in our lifetime, you know, a million people on the streets of London, on the basis of standing up for international institutions, for the ideas of nations working together, for the ideas of protecting minorities, in this case, immigrants being targeted by the government. I just feel a tremendous sense of hope. However, it feels to me like that instinct, that kind of really visceral re- sense of resistance, of knowing that you'll stand up, does need to have within it. A very clear idea of what our values are going in, especially about the individual. It's and especially when we when we deal with nationalism and when we when we deal with issues around marginalized groups, to think, well, hang on, these are not homogenous blocks that you're talking about. The individual within them matters, and unless they're protected, they will be spoken about by group leaders who do not necessarily reflect their interests or their views. So unless that is kind of anchored down in understanding where liberalism went wrong in the past, what its values are for now, the resistance movement, to me, will make some of the same mistakes we made in the first place. But I see the push there. I see the spirit there. And I feel like there is like you have to be quite blinded by despair to have no hope at the moment, that we just have to direct it in a way that abides by the values which have originally motivated it. Hello, it's Andrew Harrison, the producer here. If you like Romaniacs, you will love The Bunker. Every Wednesday, the Romaniacs
0: regulars plus new guests get together for a no-holds-barred political roundtable about anything and everything except Brexit.
1: What we are definitely living through is a golden age of incompetence. We don't talk about the parts of the data pipeline that are the cause of misleading arguments. On Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, there's The
0: Bunker Daily, with one-to-ones and explainers on everything from the economy To the arts,
3: culture, and even food.
0: Italians are extravagant about food but never wasteful. That's what I'm like.
3: I'm a genius. That's what the J stands for Donald J. Trump. That's the bunker, with all your favourites from Romaniacs and more. Get it wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We're going to segue into our segment to the barricades uh, because you're our guest this week um, <laughs> instead of a panellist. Where we pick a cause. As you may as you may know, we pick a cause from Maniacs listeners to rally behind. You cannot just say liberalism again. OK, so I want to talk
1: about um, the Moria camp. So this is um, it's a refugee camp in Europe. It burned down on the 9th of September. There was a little bit of media coverage, not much. There's a lot of people in that in that camp. There's about thirteen thousand people who are resident in that camp, um, and they've lost pretty much all of their tents. They've lost their homes. This, I mean, they've been there for a, about six months, and a COVID outbreak, and there is almost no European help for them at all. There's nowhere really for the asylum seekers to go because there's, there's still a lockdown in place. So they're in the sort of surrounding areas. The, the extremely troubling thing that's happening is that, that no one's registering um, the minors, no one's registering the children. So they're potentially extremely vulnerable um, to criminal gangs who smuggle them away, and we think that's already happening. There are activities happening now. There is. I, I will. I'm going to pass on the link to the funding campaign, to, to the guys that run uh, the podcast, and they'll put it out along with this. If you can give money, like I vouch for the specific campaign that we're going to put out, I can vouch for the people running it. They're extremely sort of um, serious people. They're very trustworthy people. They know exactly what they're doing. And those teams from Fenix Humanitarian Legal Aid are going in there, they're helping people with disabilities, with complex medical conditions, they're working on their cases, and most importantly, they're actively searching for the unaccompanied minors who've been left there without being identified by the state, they haven't been evacuated or anything like that. If you can help, this isn't getting much attention, it's an absolute humanitarian fucking disaster, so if you can help with that, please do, and we'll be putting out the link to the fundraising efforts um, through the Twitter account.
0: Finally this week, never mind the future of liberalism, what about lorries? Uh, it's one last, one last bit of Brexit news. A COVID testing centre in Ebbsfleet has been closed so it could be turned into a post-Brexit lorry park, even as people in need of tests are being directed to testing sites hundreds of miles away from where they live. Alex, does this suggest uh, that Brexit is now actually a higher priority than COVID, or is it just another fuck-up from BJ and the fuck-up squad?
3: I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just emblematic of the issue people have been raising for months on which Best for Britain has been particularly active this notion of one crisis at a time. You know, something I've been banging on for years now on this podcast, the departments, people and budgets dealing with both Brexit and COVID come from the same limited pool. This is not an ideological point or or a defeat Brexit point. It's a practical, everyday decisions are being made How many people can I second from that department to this department? One necessarily sucks oxygen from the other. Why on earth a government would choose to pile one clusterfuck on top of another is beyond me?
0: And the smart freight system used to process vehicles only launches in beta in mid-December, we just discovered, won't be fully tested and stable until April 2021, uh, a little too late, at the earliest. As Keir Starmer would clearly like to frame it, is Brexit as a political issue now become all about competence and the the ability to deliver rather than, as in the good old days, whether or not it should be delivered at all?
3: Yes, and the brilliant thing from the opposition's point of view about this is that it's so incredibly predictable. I mean, it's not like experience... (laughs) teaches us these sort of huge novel government IT projects are ever delivered glitch-free and on time. I cannot think of a single example. I think this is the least surprising news I have ever seen.
0: It would be really, really, really surprising if it was like, you know, businesses, business organisations today praise the government for doing what it said it was going to do on time.
3: (laughs) Or early. (laughs) Or early. It would be amazing. I mean, literally, you could have written the opinion piece on this six months ago and just banked it to send to someone when the news broke that this was going to be a fuck up.
0: Uh, Naomi, eight haulage firms have warned about potential border chaos and now 23 auto industry associations say that a bad Brexit could cost them over 50 billion pounds. Um, Do you think some of these companies are just going to bail out of the UK uh, if, if no deal is achieved?
2: Uh, it's of course it's it's highly possible uh or or, you know they go under or or whatever if, if costs become too exorbitant for them um and the government can sort of say what it likes about itself but ultimately they can't do time travel we're putting in barriers and even with a comprehensive deal barriers create delays and delays are costly because they mess up the supply chain and It burns through diesel and it takes up the time of truckers and border staff. And, you know, that's just a few examples. And no matter how brilliant the government thinks it is, it it can't control time. You slow things down and costs go up and, you know, then costs get fed through to consumers and whether that is via a kind of straightforward price rise or a reduction in the number of players in the market, we know that, you know, everything is just going to get less affordable um, and less speedy in terms of how we we get products and critical things like medicines and, uh, you know, lovely things that we want to buy from abroad, like, you know, delicious tomatoes and things like that. So, you know, it, it 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 doesn't look good. Um, and, uh, you know, then that's before we've even considered whether the shareholders are going to bear the burden of this for any length of time, because, you know, that's just not how, how capitalism works, I'm afraid. So, no, I, I I don't have any particular insight into any of the individual firms as to whether they'll exit, but surely, surely it, it, it looks likely.
0: Ian, you write about how liberalism put forward trade uh, at some point as an alternative to war. Um, have there always been figures like Johnson and Gove who seem to treat trade as if it is a war or is this, uh, is this a fun new twist?
1: <laughs> yeah, there, there are, but it, it's, it's like a kind of a progress towards war and they point at every fuck it keeps on happening. So, uh, you know, again, that's one of the things you see in the build up to, to the second world war. Humans want stuff from one another, like they want things from each other. And there's basically two ways to get it. You know, there's war and then there's trade. And we would really much rather it was trade. Trade, the truth of it, is actually requires cooperation. I mean, that's what the the single market is. It's very extensive cooperation to make trade as free as possible. That's what an FTA, a free trade agreement is. That's what it involves. So the second you get people thinking, as Trump does, you know, that trade is a zero-sum game, that if you have a trade deficit, you're losing rather than just you want to buy more shit. which Americans typically do, especially when it comes to cheap Chinese goods, for instance, then you've got someone who fundamentally hasn't understood trade. And the more that they don't understand it, the more they break down the systems upon which it functions. And the more they do that, and this sounds hyperbolic, I'm not saying that the US is about to go to war with China or that we're about to go to war with Europe. But the more they do that, the more they edge you towards where war is the way that you get the stuff that you need, because you've broken down the mechanism that allows you to get it without that being a requirement. So yeah, I mean, this shit goes it goes back again. Sorry to keep on repeating myself. It goes back four hundred years, and we're seeing the latest iteration of it right now. We've reached the end of the show. Thanks to Naomi.
2: Thank you,
0: Alex. Thank you, guys, and our special guest. We'll be having him back soon.
3: Ian, <laughs> serious Ian, <laughs> serious Ian.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Wait, but was I was I'm also being serious, Ian. Now, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we'll invite the other guy back next time. You
3: were speaking on behalf of Sirius Ian. Do
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know the Key and Peel sketch where Obama's anger translator? Well, Ian on the podcast is like the is like Sirius Ian's anger translator. He makes the same points, but while swearing and quite fast.
2: There were there were a couple of bullshits today. Yeah.
0: If you're listening. As a Patreon, How To Be A Liberal is available today, September 17th. If you're listening normally, it was available yesterday and it's probably still available today unless it's sold out. Romaniacs listeners get 10% off through the Cambri Press website when you use the code HTBAL10. That's How To Be A Liberal 10 at checkout. That's at cambripress.com with the code HTBAL10. And the wonders never cease because backing us on Patreon gets you exclusive access to our Bunker vs. Romaniacs live stream next Thursday. And you'll get your name read out at the end of the podcast. It's time for a list of our latest backers scored by our theme song Demon as a Monster by Corner
3: Hello from me to Royal Hess, Holly Adams, and Ryan Leahy.
2: And a huge thank you from me to Robin Luth, Ross Schonfield, and Jessica Jackson.
1: Uh, and a big hello from me to Rachel Abbott. Petal Jam, and Thomas Benson.
0: Thanks for me to Matthew Enright, Colleen Jones, and Simon Wright. Take care out there in groups of no more than six, or I'll shock you to the fuzz.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and we'll see you next week.
3: <laughs> Romaniacs was presented by
0: Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu, Naomi Smith, and Ian Dunt. Audio production and scripting was by me,
3: Alex Reese. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.